Peace, We Build It is a podcast about the Alliance for Peacebuilding and its network of over 190 organizations working in 181 countries to reduce and prevent violent conflict and extremism and build sustainable peace. In this podcast, we talk to AFP organizational members, expert researchers, and policy advocates on how they're tackling the challenging work of conflict prevention and building peace at a time of increasing violent conflict, violence, and fragility. My name is Liz Hume, and I'm the Executive Director of the Alliance for Peacebuilding. In 2022, AFP celebrated its 20-year anniversary, and today it is a thriving and robust network of over 190 organizations and more than 30,000 global peace builders in 181 countries working to end violent conflict and build sustainable peace. Our community proves that we do not have to accept that violent conflict is inevitable and that building peace is possible in faraway places and in neighborhoods just down the street. But we know peace doesn't just happen, we have to build it. Over two decades ago, a small group of visionary peace builders established the Alliance for Peacebuilding. AFP was officially incorporated in 2002. These founding leaders knew if we wanted to build and advance the peacebuilding field, we needed to work together. And that's just what AFP does. It tackles issues too large for any one organization to address alone. We are so fortunate today to have three very special guests who are leaders in the peacebuilding field, but also were critical to the founding of AFP. And they're truly amazing human beings. And I'm so fortunate that I get to work with them still. I would first like to welcome Melanie Greenberg. She's the managing director for Peacebuilding at Humanity United, an organization dedicated to cultivating the conditions for enduring peace and freedom. Before joining Humanity United, she was CEO of the Alliance for Peacebuilding for seven years. And before that, she was the president of the Cypress Fund for Peace and Security. She's a lawyer and publishes frequently on peacebuilding. Robert Sigliano is a systems and complexity coach at the Omidyar Group, where he supports and guides teams within organizations and initiatives and efforts to better understand and effectively engage with dynamic systems. He is the guru on systems change and applying it to the peacebuilding field. He was a founding board member of AFB and served as a board chair, and he now serves as an emeritus board member. He was the co-director at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee of the Masters of Sustainable Peace Program, and he publishes frequently and is the author of Making Peace Last. We also get to welcome Harach Gregorian. Harach is currently the MA International Peace and Conflict Resolution Program Director at American University School of International Service. In addition to co-founding AFP, he served on the AFP board for many years. He was also one of the founding program directors of the United States Institute of Peace, where he developed the Institute's first professional training program in conflict analysis and negotiation. We're so grateful for all of your work in establishing AFP and for joining us today for this very special conversation, AFP at 20, more than two decades of peace building. So we've come a long way from our early beginnings, especially considering peace building wasn't even on, wasn't even an official word when AFP was founded. Today, we have a cadre of robust global champions advocating for peace building, 
For example, in the United States, we have successfully advocated for adopting the Global Fragility Act, the Elie Wiesel Genocide and Atrocities Prevention Act, and the United Nations just recently released the new Sustainable Peace Agenda. AFP is also moving toward evidence-based standards to prove what works and what doesn't work in the field. PeaceCon AFP's annual conference started with only a few people, and it was a retreat. But now it welcomes thousands from over 80 countries and includes policymakers, practitioners, and academics. PeaceCon 2023, for example, made its way to over a half a million screens. And we look forward to the PeaceCon community growing even larger throughout uh, the years to come. But even though we've made some serious gains as a sector, violent conflict and fragility globally reached a 30-year high in 2018. And this record was set prior to the global COVID-19 pandemic and the wars in Ukraine and Sudan. Unfortunately, conflict and fragility are increasing and issues including climate change are compounding conflict. We are also experiencing democratic backsliding in the global North, and even right here in the United States, we are experiencing political violence. Preventing and reducing global violent conflict and building sustainable peace are some of the most significant challenges of our time. And AFP's 20th anniversary provides the opportunity to reflect on where AFP came from and where do we go from here. So thank you so much for being with us today. We are so grateful that you are all here. And I want to start off with the first question. Each of you played a pivotal role in establishing AFP. But how did the idea come about? And why did you think it was important to establish AFP? Rob, let's start with you. Um, thanks, Liz. Thanks for inviting us and for doing this. Um, it is a great, uh, it's an auspicious occasion to sort of reflect. Um, uh, so I'm going to relay a story which uh, about a meeting that Parach was at as well. So he may have a other recollection of this. But the initial conversation, as I remember it, was Parach and I were invited to do a training at the World Bank with Louise Diamond. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're sitting at lunch, just the three of us just having like a sandwich. And I think it was Raj who said, isn't it, isn't it odd how much conflict there is amongst organizations that are set up to manage conflict? And we all kind of chuckled. And then we, after we got done chuckling, we were like going, oh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's not good. Um, maybe we should do something about that. And we we tossed that around and it, it kind of hit on this topic of what if we just invited heads of, of the, like these 20 some organizations in the US that are working on in the same area and just kind of said, let's just do, again, I think it was Roger said, let's do shop talk. Let's just talk about what it's like to work in this field and see if we can, some things can emerge about that in terms of what we might do together to actually alter the dynamics in the field. but. Anyway, that's my recollection. I don't know, Raj, if you uh, amend or, or change that. Yeah, uh, Rob has a, a very good memory. Um, it was the three of us. We were talking, and I, I can tell you that we I'd come back from some other meeting in which um, there was a good deal of um, 
what shall we call it? Not hostility, but disagreement, uh, misalignment with with a very small community. I thought, and and the idea was, look, that larger organizations, the development organization, the human rights organizations, have found ways to collaborate. Why is it that in the conflict resolution field of all fields, uh, we have not uh, followed suit and? That was that was one impetus. Another impetus for it was worrying that we simply were not getting um, the amount of financial support that I thought the field needed to be effective. And one of the concerns I had was we weren't getting it because we weren't getting a whole lot of government funding. And we weren't getting government funding because we didn't have representation of the sort that other uh, allied fields, let's say, uh, had and I had in mind uh, interaction at the time, and so I said, you know, we need some organization which will help, uh, almost be like a union. That's why the term shop talk uh, came up. Be our union, uh, which will unionize us as organizations and also give voice to the field. Okay, so thank you for that. That it's a great story. I love it, and I can, I can, I can visualize you saying that, Haraj. Um, Melanie, any, you know, you were around for the beginning too. What, what are some of your thoughts on this? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Liz, for organizing this conversation. And say it's a bit of an emotional moment to see AFP twenty years later, and just to thank you and your staff and the board and the community just for your vision and the commitment and the passion you continue to bring to peace building. So thank you. So going back 20 years, I had recently started at the Hewlett Foundation, which was in the middle of a massive field building um, exercise itself, primarily focused in the United States, funding theory centers around the country to build a field of conflict resolution. And I was brought on to expand that work internationally. And this extraordinary group came to me with Rob, Roch, um, others at the time that had somewhat expanded, Louise Diamond, um, Andrea Strimling, to say exactly what you both just said, like, we need a union, we need a voice. And what was really fascinating was the question at the time of whether or not this was a field. And those debates raged for probably 10 or 15 years. What does it mean to be a field? Are we part of human rights? Are we part of development? Are we part of conflict resolution? Is conflict resolution- What do we call it? What do we call it? So the first AFP was called ACRON, the Applied Conflict Resolution Organization Network. <laughs> Talk about wonky. Wonky, wonky. And I'll maybe I tell- I have notes from those meetings of ACRON. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you later about a very difficult conflict when AFP was trying to change its name with the domestic group. And this is important. The U.S.-based groups had just formed a group called the Association for Conflict Resolution, which was itself um, a basket organization for a number of other coalitions and organizations. And I thought it was such a brilliant idea that this really nascent body of work, this was the late 90s, 2000, we're only 10 years out of the Cold War. The idea that citizens could be could build peace was quite radical. There were these brilliant efforts around the world to bring uh, techniques of mediation and sustained dialogue to conflicts like Rwanda and Bosnia that were causing real existential angst about the state of the post-Cold War world. And so I just saw this group as true visionaries and builders. And the Hewlett Foundation gave a foundational grant after a year of kind of working together on a business plan. 
No, I, I remember having, we were at a panel discussion and uh, I'm not sure who all was on it and if it was a, at a Apron or one of our early events, but there was a prominent member of, the, of our community who was like, I had used the word peace building and he was like, um, that's not a word, like that's not a term. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, well, what would you call it? And, and it was one of these things where it was like, if we don't, it, it got, it went, that was a moment for me where it went from being just a semantic thing to actually being something important that we couldn't just call it conflict resolution or applied conflict resolution. That peace building really named the thing we were trying to do. And it was also sort of in terms of, as, as Rosh and Melanie were saying, building a field. It's like, well, what field do we want to build? It, it's actually the peace building field. And it doesn't actually shouldn't matter if it's international or domestic. It's peace building. So that word just, it was that moment for me that said, this is not just a cement thing. It's not just my preference. This is actually an important distinction. You're absolutely right. Because preventing and reducing violent conflict or fragility is just that negative piece, right? It's important, but you have to also build sustainable peace. So I know there has been a lot of um, discussion around the world, peace, uh, around the word peace building, what it means, and that it has to be actionable and practical. But the, I can just imagine, as you were all talking, I was imagining sitting in this room, I was overseas uh, working in Bosnia or Kosovo, um, but I can just imagine you all. And it seems like such a simple concept, but was pretty revolutionary. So um, you know, once again, uh, you know, you guys are really giants in the field. But I also want to note, and you mentioned Louise Diamond, who unfortunately passed away. There were a lot of, you know, there were also a lot of others that were key to this process. So, um, you know, we want to make sure that we, you know, talk about them along the way as well. But, I, you know, again, this is this was a revolutionary concept. And so I, I think it's important that we um, give it that deference, especially because at the time in the 1990s, things were, you know, things were on the up, right? Uh, conflict, in a sense, was decreasing. The Cold War was over. We had peace agreements in Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Rwanda. Uh, you know, we, we were on a reconciliation piece there. There was a lot of promise. And so in some ways, it would have been a harder time to pull the field together. Okay, so on that note, what were some of the early successes and what were some of the challenges? And you alluded to some of these, but I'm going to start with you, Haraj. Well, I, I think one of uh, some of the one uh, significant uh, turning point was when we re when we sent out a request and how positive the response was by our colleagues in the field to the concept, I mean, we had no idea uh, just because three of us had talked about it that it would resonate, but it resonated. So a major accomplishment there was that we were probably on the right track. Um, a major positive turning point. If, if there is a negative side to speak of, uh, it wasn't people; it was resources. We were on a shoestring, truly on a shoestring. And we had people, you know, uh, all over the country and, in, and maybe in one or two cases of the world and uh, how to how to draw people together. Remember, this was pre 
Zoom, electronic platforms, nothing of what we take for granted for communication now, believe it or not, existed in the late uh, 90s. And uh, so how to bring everybody together was, and a lot of people uh, who didn't have the money paid out of pocket uh, to get together. And uh, so that was a major challenge um, to put things together. And then the other was, it brought people together who frankly knew of each other's work, each other's work, but had never really dealt with each other. And that was an interesting phenomenon to, to, to witness. Um, a lot of uh, people who are intellectually and conceptually uh, behind uh, peace building, let's say, uh, have a difficult time with other peace builders, uh, particularly if they, if they are the founders of their organization they suffer from what we call the edifice complex. Okay, so I want to pull that thread with you just for a second, Haraj, because I completely agree with you. And in fact, one of the giants in our field, Sharon Morris, uh, who I worked with at USAID, had a theory that people go into the conflict field because they're trying to work out conflict. They're, you know, they have a lot of conflict in their lives and they're trying to work it out. This is a fascinating um, issue. And it doesn't just apply to the conflict resolution field. Many people, and this is a gross generalization, so let's just keep it between us and everybody <laughs> that's going to be uh, hearing this. A lot of people go into the do-gooder field, as I call it, uh, to compensate for something. And uh, uh, people have different uh, um, motivations, uh, faith-based, ideological, what have you. But uh, for a good number of people, it's also a psychological phenomenon. And so when it comes to dealing with others, especially those that view themselves as leaders in the field, when it comes to dealing with other leaders in the field, cooperating and competing uh, come to a head. Uh, so we sent out 21 invitations to 21 heads of organizations originally and 19 accepted. And then, and the other two were like out of the country, basically. And one of the cut, right? So it was almost 21 for 21, which is like unheard of. And that was, that said something right there. I think the other piece, um, other big turning point going to, to this question about like, our, why are we not getting along is I think also in those years, people really were standing on these ideological distinctions about what made their work distinctive. And those were really important if you're all sort of competing for funds. And I think one of the turning points was when early on, I think people realized funders don't give a whatever about the, 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 the nuance between a need and interest, a want. Like we're, we're getting hung up on these words, conflict resolution versus trend. what And the people who are funding us aren't actually caring about that. And that's why they're funding development organizations and other organizations who are less experienced in this field, but are, are getting into it uh, because there's there's money starting to come. So it was that realization that we we actually had much, our conflicts between us were much smaller than they were between the needs us as, that we had as a field um, to work together as a field. I think that was a really important one. I think the other, another one was around I mean, Melanie can talk much more about the substantive accomplishments, I think. But in terms of field building, it was these conversations we had originally, okay, we're 21, who else should be here? And it was, well, there were other conflict resolution organizations that ought to be here, right? peace building organizations. Then someone said, but what about the development organizations, like private sector organizations? Oh, no, 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 no. What about government? No, no, no. Not the military? No, 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 no. 
And eventually we began one by one to sort of break through those barriers and start to open it up to other uh, nonprofit organizations who were doing, doing work in allied fields that we could broadly think of as peace building. It was getting into like those who are in the private sector, but doing this work into the part of the alliance. And as that alliance grew, it also sort of mirrored, I think, the growth and the acceptance of the term of peace building. And that, I mean, that literally is the growth of the field. So those are really important, I think, milestones for the for the organization. So Rob, really quickly, I remember, I mean, this is almost a decade ago, uh, you, we were still having this conversation at AFP and you said, we're going to be a big tent. If you're working on this, you're in, we don't care who you are. And, you know, that didn't resonate with a lot of people because a lot of people only wanted it to be non-governmental organization and geos. But you were very firm when you were chairing the board at AFP. And those words always stuck with me. And I'm always, we're a big tent. Everybody's included. And so I think that was a, you know, a really important distinction or decision that you really championed. Thanks. Okay. So Melanie, you're... You know, you are the champ, you are such a positive champion of this field and you, you don't have a conflict problem. I can tell you that from someone who has worked for you. I always tell everybody, Melanie is what you get. She's this incredibly positive, incredible person. And I always say everybody should have a Melanie Greenberg in their life. Um, So I'm fortunate that I do. Okay. So what, we know there were some challenges, but What were some of the successes? I think a lot of the successes actually came from the challenges. And it was a very poignant time in many ways. If you think about how soon after AFP was formed, we had September 11th. That was 2001. And there was, I think, a real reckoning in the field about, you know, doing all this great work in conflict resolution. How did this happen? There was this huge sucking energy into what became the countering violent extremism field. There's the Hewlett Foundation where I was basically shut down its program saying we can't measure the impact of peace building. And a lot of the arguments about should we have standards, should there be uniform ways we measure peace suddenly came into huge, uh, huge importance. And I think that some of the early successes were really um, overcoming what you know Rob and Raj were talking about is these very minute divisions to say, we need a way to measure peace. We have to be able to measure it the way we measure development, humanitarian aid, even human rights, environment, education. And there were huge strides and that AFP really led the way in thinking about how as a field do we measure the impact of our work and how do we push back against some of the measures that were very popular, you know, like RCTs, which we were so expensive and not always measuring what we felt needed to be measured. Advocacy was a huge win. And, you know, everyone on this call, Lisa Shirk, really advocating with the military, with the U.S. government to say there has to be a way other than war for us to transform societies, that there'll always be conflict but then we have ways of thinking about, we didn't call it positive peace then, but kind of building the peace so we don't have the extremism, we don't have war. You know, I think that all of those then brought along more funding, never enough, but I do feel those efforts around evaluation, measuring impact and advocacy did lead to broader government and philanthropic funding for peace. Okay, so as you all, you know, AFP has been over the years 
an award-winning nonprofit. We won the Luxembourg Award. We won, um, we were named the number one uh, peace-building influencer organization. And, you know, so much of it has to do with the team at the time that's working there, but none of this would have happened. Um, and also, Melanie, you were here when some of those awards were, were won, you were leading AFP, but none of that would have happened without, you know, as I always, you know, Melanie will call me and say, that's amazing. And I'm like, well, it wouldn't have happened. You guys laid the platform. You guys built this. Um, you know, we're just, you know, you built the foundation and the walls and put some wallpaper. I mean, we're just kind of putting the roof on now. So what do you think are some of the key milestones or accomplishments that demonstrate how AFP has made a difference in the field over the past 20 years? I'll start with you, Rob. Um, I think, so in, in terms of what is meant to the field, I mean, certainly the advocacy wins have been many and really incredible. Getting a seat at the table and just being invited into conversations at the State Department or other places that we wouldn't have been, we certainly wouldn't have been without AFP. The, one of the other ones, I mean, I'll let Rach and Melanie speak to this too, but the other one that that for me was kind of a nice measurable was when we would have an annual meeting, which we started with originally, that was 19 people originally that, that got together. It was largely, though, in the early years conceived of just kind of like a this community gathering, effectively. And it was with um, with originally with Chick Dombach when he was CEO and he and I were talking and we went into USIP and said, why don't we do something together? Like, why don't we host a conference together? and open it to the public because USIP has that public mission of public outreach, the beautiful building, new building that was there. This was in the early years of the new building. And it was that moment when this thing, our ga annual gathering went from like 30 or 40 people to like 200 to, and I, 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 Liz, you could, what was it this year? I don't know, like 1700. It was like, mm -hmm. we never get virtual participants and so on. I mean, it's truly incredible. If you just look, look at that as a measure of who's interested in this thing called peace building. And who benefits from and something that will bring peace builders together and and be a force for the field? I think that's probably uh, that's one of the best indicators. I think if you want to look at the the spread of this idea and, and the energy behind it, I I don't think it's overstating uh, the fact that we were able to capture um, intellectually people like Melanie who had access to the resources that could make help us to actualize because you don't know you have all these ideas you have these great ideas but unless there's some way of of uh, implementing uh, those uh, ideas um they might be stillborn but with uh, Melanie's arrival and the resources she was about uh, she 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 was able to um bring to the effort uh, i think we made a major that represented a major turning point in terms of the history of the organization, because not only did it help us in, in doing the work we wanted to do, but it also affirmed uh, to us uh, like nothing else could. I mean, a million dollars at that time, even now, was a was a, a large sum of money. And I think it was one of the first sort of confirmations from the larger world that we were onto something uh, really significant. The other is, I think we had we had the the wherewithal to hire really really good people, 
You know, Chet Crocker used to say, good people can overcome bad organizations, but it doesn't work the other way around. Um, so we were able to attract really outstanding people. And so I would say those two factors were very important. Building on that, Raj, just thinking for a moment about AFP's institutional development, it's just fascinating to think about how, like, what does a field building network look like? And started out with an activist board that really managed the day-to-day -day operations, hired Bill Stutner, who was the first, was we didn't call him even an executive director, I think. He was like a network leader. Chick Dombach, who was truly visionary, renamed the organization, very active on the Hill and Congress, uh, helped save U.S. Institute of Peace when its budget um, was faltering, set in motion the process for expanding out to humanitarian and development organizations. You know, I came on and was able to build on that. And then we had Azra and finally Liz. And during that time, as you'd said, just remarkable staff members and also a board that remained half AFP members and half outside that was not easy to manage, but with all the dedication to actually create an organization that could support the field. So in a in a starved universe for funding to be able to build organizationally like that, extraordinary. Uh, and then just uh, totally agree about the role that PeaceCon has played. Um, and now that it's really such a beacon for the whole field. And I would also say something a little bit more nebulous, which is AMP's ability to see around corners, to know mm -hmm. what the issues are coming up and to anticipate them, to lead from ahead, to bring the field along, to, to sense make in a complex environment. And so we think about all the working groups that AFP has had. CBE was huge. The work on neuroscience, uh, locally led peace building, now a US-based working group. Like I always feel that AFP is that one step ahead, which I think is key for any kind of, of industry leader. Thank you. And I, I always, think... uh, sorry, go ahead, Rob. No, I mean, things like the Global Fragility Act um, and the role that AFP played in that. I think it's not USIP folks value this, but AFP played a very key role when USIP's funding was first it's slated to be zeroed out. And we helped to lead the lobbying effort around that from the from the, from the community that we had have, we have been, been building. I think that was also really critical. Uh, the evaluation work, the, the work on evaluation, Melanie, to your point about like, trying to actually sort of coalesce some thinking about this that was shared by the field and informed by the field. I think it gave it a legitimacy and uh, the, the way we connected people on that issue and connect them, you know, it was, a, it was a place that people that were wondering, like you mentioned with Hewlett, I don't know how to measure peace building. And whether you were, that was true for people at the State Department and USAID and other development organizations. And so we played, a, we helped fill a very important role in that and the whole how do you evaluate peace building and that was critical also to to building a field and showing that it actually was valuable so rob you hit it on the head i never i tell people i never want to hear you can't measure that conflict didn't happen and that was something we had to get over right and a lot of peace building experts were like you can't measure it it's not something you can measure and i I always tell this story. My husband's in the global health field and he's and he would say, I have no idea how you guys get away with what you get away with in terms of not measuring what you're doing and getting funding for it. So, you know, the three of you really laid that foundation um, and we have an incredible 
uh, our the deputy executive director, Jessica Baumgartner Zuzek, uh, she has been leading that uh, work, taking it to the next level, really focusing in on better, you know, good evidence equals better policies and programs. And that's really what we, uh, you know, we really stand for here. Um, but it's it's a challenge because we got to get the donors to pay for it. And then we also have to get organizations to really implement it. So that's, I think, one of our next really big challenges or one of the ones that we're working on. But okay, so these are some of the successes. But what do you think are some of the most you know, you guys are leaders in this field. What are some of the significant challenges and opportunities in the years ahead? You know, Melanie, seeing around those corners um, and how should AFP position itself? What are the things that we should be working on? That's a tough question. <laughs> um, you guys. Are one of the, one of the uh, key issues right now, I think, uh, that's facing whatever AFP faces is really what the field faces in terms of challenges and things to look out for and such. And I think there's a lot of innovation going on. And the question is, how can the field of conflict resolution and peace building keep pace with what the developments are in other disciplines that are relevant? Uh, certainly AI comes to mind, uh, neuroscience comes to mind. My pet projects have to do with uh, art and, and dealing with uh, uh, post-war trauma and other brain injuries and such. I think one theme I would say is not becoming, as sometimes organizations do, complacent with the success, uh, but always um, pushing the boundaries uh, both of the organization and the field. I think no one organization can push the boundaries and have the influence that an umbrella organization like AFB can have. And this is a time of change and innovation, God knows. Uh, so the role it can play, uh, both in bringing us all together to think about these things, but also in, 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 in dealing with this new world, I think is going to be critical to its continued success. It's a great answer. Melanie, Rob? Um, so it's, I feel like my answer is, is predictable given that my, my title is systems and complexity coach, which is, so I think one of the, one of the big challenges that we face is how do we move beyond the attention that's legitimately paid to the hurting situations where there is violence or there is, you know, post-conflict or you're dealing with trauma and you're dealing with underdevelopment and so on. And how do we, how do we actually not lose sight? of the fact that we do need kind of systemic level engagements to build peace. So it's it's not just about stopping the violence. It's not just about addressing the urgent needs. It's also about dealing with these underlying long-term dynamics, intergroup relationships, uh, drivers of, of poverty and inequity that are always gonna be seeds for conflict into the future, but really require a long-term systemic approach, which is not easy. It's not the same toolkit that you use to to stop violence or or even even um, provide assistance to communities that are that are suffering post conflict. So it's building that toolkit and and helping to keep attention based on that. And and I think probably the most important thing is as how do you secure an appropriate source of funding for that? Because funders tend to have pretty short attention spans. All in all, I mean, short meaning a year or two, maybe three. And, and whereas this is generational in, in its work. So I think it's moving us into that realm 
keeping that issue on the front burner. We can do for that what we've done with, with sort of funding in general for the field. I think, you know, uh, we will have accomplished something incredible. It's going to take time to do that, but uh, it's going to take our own sort of systems change within the peace building field, I think, and especially in the donor community to get there. But I think that's a huge challenge. Totally agree with what both of you just said. I have a couple of things I've been thinking about. I think we all need to be concerned about the rise in violence and that by any measure, we're, we're experiencing uh, something well beyond an uptick to a state of normal, which, which is highly violent, not just confrontational. And at the same time, I think the response has been a securitization of the field. And then a lot of bilateral donors and others are thinking, well, we kind of need to fight fire with fire. The way to build peace is to go through war. And while we're not pacifists in the peace building field necessarily, I am very concerned about the securitization. And going back to a bit of a Cold War mentality, this is all about geopolitics. The big boys in government need to deal with this. You know, your efforts are kind of quaint and how to push back against that narrative because we know about transformation, we are familiar with systems, but I think there's a cynicism about transformation and the ability to transform that's setting, setting in that we really need to fight. I also see a very interesting pendulum. In 2011, the pendulum had swung completely to the direction of, if you get the institutions right, peace will follow, that the World Development Report, that was proved wrong the pendulum has swung, I think, in a very good direction to focus now very much on trauma, on healing, on kind of that inter, intrapersonal change that's necessary. Absolutely crucial, and I'm a huge champion of that. But I do think that as we focus on that, it is sometimes easy to lose sight of the fact that we still do need to have that system that includes both the institutions, responsive governance, the governance of networks, how we think about movements, as well as the individual change, because that's all part of peace building. I agree with all of you. And just to you know, bolster what you were saying, Melanie, in 2018, we hit a global high in violent conflict and fragility, and that was before Ukraine and Sudan and COVID. So those numbers are increasing, coupled with the fact we're seeing the backsliding of democracy and violence right here in the global north, including the United States. So these are all added factors to what is happening right now. Okay, so we talk about conflict prevention. Um, we've gotten, you know, President Biden talked about it when he was releasing the country plans for the Global Fragility Act. The UN Secretary General, you know, conflict prevention, conflict prevention, but why are we not seeing it resourced properly? Why why is it considered a second order issue and not a first order issue? And how do we change that? Um, I can answer, I can try to answer the first part. I don't know that I can do a, an adequate job with the second part. Um, the reason it happens is because the the kind of policy that's necessary to affect the kind of uh, structural change uh, that Rob referred to in talking about systems dynamics is like moving graveyards. It's extremely difficult. It's, it's, it's extremely uh, expensive. Uh, uh, so the for most politicians, and I use the term politician advisedly, it's the next election. So you tend to go to the symptomatic uh, factors 
uh, you're just not going to get a lot of uh, mileage with going after the structural factors. That, that's why somebody like Jimmy Carter is uh, uh, unpopular, uh, whereas somebody like Ronald Reagan is popular. It's just, it's, it's completely crazy. But the fact is, if you go under, if you get into the complex underlying factors that need to be addressed systematically, uh, structurally such, you're not, you're, you're not, one, you don't have the wherewithal to do it. Uh, it's very difficult to do. And, and two, um, you know, it's the bright shining object. Uh, you go after whatever the presenting problem is. And the presenting problems are difficult enough as it is, a la Ukraine, okay, that you don't go back to, geez, how did we get here? And could we have done something more, uh, structural and otherwise that would have prevented this from happening? So I think to me, that's part of the reason why, the answer to the why, how to change it, I'm going to leave to my colleagues who are much smarter. Well, really quickly, Haraj, you always have great sayings. So I moving graveyards. It's uh, not fun. <laughs> it's not, I say it's not sexy. It's not the sexy stuff. Right. And that I think is I think is critical. I so I I, I was thinking a lot about this question and and I agree I agree with agree with Haraj on that. And and just the thing as you were saying, Liz, that you know, if it's out of sight, out of mind, right? So if the conflict's not happening, then I care less about it. It's just less urgent for me, right? That's just a human human trait. But, but I, I think, so in terms of, this is both, a, I think, part of the reason why, but also maybe what you do about it, which is we're, we're at a time where people are talking about the need for big paradigm shifts in capitalism, in democracy or governance more generally. Some of these climate, right, some of these systems, um, our inability to deal with the global pandemic. There are these huge, big disruptions that are happening. And while that's both a challenge, because like you can get lost in the shuffle there, because it's like, wait, conflict prevention, I, 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 I got to stop flooding from happening in, in half of my country. It also provides an opportunity to actually start to reframe and look for opportunities to change. So I, I was thinking about like, preventative health stuff. And we, I think when people talk about preventative health, you got to do preventative health. People are like, eh. When it, now, though, people talk about fitness and nutrition, and it's the things you need to do to actually prevent you know, health conditions or, or uh, uh, ensure long-term health. Those things have kind of been reframed, repackaged. They found new energy. There's new ways people are organizing around them. So what are those things around conflict prevention, whether it's around responsive institutions or participation or local engagement um and conflict like there there are what are the, the those ways that we we actually can achieve conflict prevention without calling it conflict prevention because just by calling it conventions hasn't been able to, to persuade anybody um, but they may invest in what they're now seeing are fundamental flaws or shortcomings in very basic structures like the economy and like democracy we need new ways to deal with those, which provides, I think, some opportunity to start to get people to focus on those things that we know are actually going to be really helpful to prevent conflict without necessarily having to call them that. But to, they're an answer to the economic issues, the governance issues, the climate issues. And those might be ways to sort of opportunities to, for the field to sort of reorganize itself um, in, in response to some of these big, big disruptions. So, Rob, you're talking about trust building, social cohesion, and an interesting point I tell, you know, I, I the fragile state index, 
one of AFP's great members, shows that the United States has declining social cohesion for 14, 14 straight years, which they have said is a freight train going in the wrong direction. So that that kind of sums up exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I think makes makes the the, the likelihood, the, the potential for not just isolated and sporadic violence happening, but actually organized, uh, coordinated, widespread sort of violence happening. As we see, you see, you see, and I've said to people a lot, you, I've, I see people saying things in the U.S. now that I would have thought it would be typical to hear in a conflict zone outside the United States. People are saying inside the United States now. And I, I haven't really necessarily, hasn't hit me in that same way in previous decades, but it is now. But again, that's both a challenge and an opportunity, I think. Melanie? What could I possibly add? I think we've <laughs> a lot here um, on conflict prevention. But maybe one thing I will add is we think about having to move huge systems for conflict prevention. It's like a, a switch uh, splits and it has to be huge government resources and policy. But what I'm struck with, and it, I think it echoes what you just said, Rob, is the people who are living closest to conflict and potential conflict, A, see it coming, and we know a lot about early warning, but B, often have a pretty good idea of how to stop it. And how do we start to integrate and aggregate those voices um, in everyday ways around conflict prevention before it has to filter up to a government response. And so much of what inspires me about peace building is everyday people who do this, who are not the professionals. And then how could we as a professional community really harness that energy and those voices? Okay, so I'm going to continue on with that, Melanie. You know, we've talked a lot about what is wrong, right? And people ask me this question all the time how do you get up and do what you're doing? Uh, so how, what has driven your personal commitment uh, to creating, you know, and supporting an organization like AFP? How do you stay hopeful despite, you know, these record-breaking conflict levels, Rob, the poly crisis? How, how do you guys stay hopeful? And, and also let's just be honest, you know, I remember when I was in Kosovo during the, um, I was working on elections there after the conflict, we had the um, the election here with Bush and Gore and people from all over the world were coming up to me and saying, I'm so sorry, is your country going to be okay? And I'm like, it's going to be fine. We have institutions. It'll go to the Supreme Court. People might not like the decision, but they will accept it. I can't say that now. So how, how, what, what keeps you guys motivated, even here in your own country? Well, um, I don't think, first of all, I get jazzed by anything as much as I do a creative problem solving. Uh, I don't come to this field uh, from um, necessarily an ideological or faith or other based motive. Uh, my motive is this is the most complex problem solving challenge we face. And uh, that in itself is enough. The other is, uh, when I look at, at my, I, I'm thinking of, of, of Beckett, particularly, who says, I can't go on. Um, I, I, I'll go on. You, what Wait, are the who's Beckett? Huh? Who's Beckett? Beckett, the playwright. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, 
I can't go on. I'll go on. Uh, okay. Choice to me, um, cynicism and 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 failure and and failure of imagination just aren't really a choice. And and as you get older and you have children and grandchildren and you look at them and say, I've got a responsibility here and I can't afford to be complacent. So I think it's a combination of um, intellectual and 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 personal and other factors. And and maybe some of us are just um, naturally optimistic, no matter what. I mean, it, must, it might almost defy any kind of uh, normal reaction to these kinds of things. Uh, uh, but that, to me, are those are uh, some of the most important issues, factors. I, I'm picking up on what I think what choice do we have is, is, so it's like, okay, peace is impossible. All right, now what do you do? Like, I, I'd rather actually live in a world where I, it might be possible, and I'll, I'll proceed on that on that uh, proceed on that assumption. One of the things that I always remember uh, is I worked with Roger Fisher when I was in law school. He's a professor of mine, and I worked with him uh, after law school. Roger is one of the co-authors of Getting the Yes and you know uh, mutual gain negotiation. And Roger had a had a little uh, plaque in his office that was a, a nine inning baseball box score. And it was a game between the realists and the idealists. And each <laughs> inning, the realists were like five to nothing over the idealists, four to nothing, eight to nothing. And at the end of the end of the nine inning, this final score was realist zero, idealist one. Um, and and I, I kind of like that for me was like, you know, Roger would say, like, life is more fun being an idealist and, and sort of believing and trying. Um, you, you can go the other way if you want. My guess is it's just going to be a bummer. And if you're right, the world's going to all, we're all going to go to 80s in a handbasket. Then we'll end up in the same place anyway. In the meantime, I'd rather, you know, <laughs> I'd rather be engaged in changing things and, and, and living optimistically than I would the other way around. Well, pulling on that thread, Rob, we haven't cured cancer. We know there's going to be another virus coming around. We don't say, eh, well, we'll just, you know, it'll happen, right? Uh, yeah. So I think that's another good um, metaphor on that. Melanie. So I do agree. I think you have to be an optimist to be a peace builder. And Rob, I love that box score image. That is just <laughs> right now. I feel that's inspired every day by what John Paul Lederach calls the moral imagination. The ability of people to live in one conflictual world and to imagine a state where the future includes their enemies and the ability to matter what happens, former paramilitaries, youth, artists, people who just have that ability to imagine. And whenever I'm feeling cynical or depressed, I think of that. Um, and it just feels like there is endless possibility, even when the statistics and the stories around us are, are so difficult. I'm also really inspired by the number of young people coming into this field and the yeah. sense that we haven't built something that's going to die with us, but that is just surging in new forms. You know, I, I, Melanie, that really is another thing that for me is really important. Um, you know, the work that we've done with putting the lot together has been, I think, very significant. It's made a huge contribution. And if you look at the number of people around the world who have lived and who have died pursuing peace, we owe it to them. Mm -hmm. It makes me emotional even to think about it. But I mean, that's a, that's a you need motivation. Start with that, um, I think. Um, and also just just to mention some of the other folks who 
were really instrumental, especially in the early years of the Alliance. We, we mentioned them, but like people like Paula Gutlov, along with Andrew Strimbling and Harash and I were the original kind of like uh, board, I guess, of, of, of what became AFP. People like Ron Fisher, Donna Hicks, Peter Woodrow, Diana Chigas, who I worked a lot with on this, um, were all just, uh, I know I'm, and I'm also forgetting a ton of people that I shouldn't be forgetting, but just there were so many people just in our community who were, who were critical to making this happen and are still critical to making it happen. So I love how you talked about that, Rob. The peace building gang who, who moved this forward, but the future and the hope is all the people that are coming, you know, behind us or with us. And so I can't thank you guys enough for the work you did, the work you're doing, your inspiration, uh, your idealism. Uh, I, I just, you know, we all owe you just such a debt of gratitude. And I'm so privileged that I still get to work with you all. Rob, uh, Rob and I had coffee uh, maybe two years ago, and he's an uh, emeritus board member. And he's like, don't you think it's time, Liz? And I was like, nope, nope. Once you're in the AFP family, you're, you're here. Uh, there's no getting, you know, getting out. And I'm just so fortunate that I get to work with all of you, you know, all still. And again, what an amazing gift you all are to me personally, to AFP, to the peace building field. And I, I can't be more grateful. So just on that note, is there anything that, you know, you guys didn't, you didn't hit on that you'd like, you know, to leave people with? Um, Liz, I'm grateful that you and AFP are there. Uh, it's like the old ad about the National Guard. I sleep better knowing <laughs> that uh, the National Guard is on guard. And uh, that's how I feel about AFP. I'm also grateful to discover that Rob is into women's dress design. And uh, he has pictures behind My, my mother is actually, those are my mom's drawing. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Yeah. Um, my father in law was a, a beater in Manhattan and he had a lot of those dress designs. And so it's it's nostalgic. And um, well, Harach, we loved your, um, people can't see it, but we loved how you showed up uh, in a muscle shirt. So. Wait, I had the same thing on that Melanie has on. Uh, why is mine a muscle shirt? I, did, I, I didn't expect to have, I, I agree that the visuals are very important. I didn't expect to be on a camera. Let's put it that way. But let me just shut up and turn it over to Melanie and, and Rob. Last Melanie, thoughts. Any parting thoughts? Just to thank, thank you, Liz and Nick and all the AFP staff that, um, Every day when I get the emails through my door of just that, that have gotten longer and longer, I feel like they will be a scroll of all the work that you are championing, that this burgeoning community is championing, uh, your representation of the voices of peace builders everywhere, and the sense that you are just on top of this. Um, I, I'm just grateful and inspired every day. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Rob and Proch. This has been such a joy to be in conversation and to rethink those events 20 years ago. Rob, any parting yeah. thoughts? Oh, th th again, thanks to, to Melanie and, and Harach. And, you know, I've, I've enjoyed working with you all and I've enjoyed being, you know, an active part of AFP for many years. And I really enjoy the fact that I could leave tomorrow and AFP has gone strong. Thank and that, that's the biggest gift of all. So, thank you. 
Well, thank you all again. What a pleasure it's been. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this very special episode of Peace We Build It. We had the enormous privilege of exploring the incredible journey of the Alliance for Peace Building over the last two decades. From its simple beginnings and it, just an idea to becoming the robust peace building network that it is today. I'd like to extend one final thank you to our special guest, Melanie Greenberg, Manager, Managing Director for Peacebuilding at Humanity United, Rob Brasigliano, Systems and Complexity Coach at the Omidyar Group, and Haraj Gregarian, Director of the MA International Peace and Conflict Resolution Program at American University Schools of International Service. As we reflect on our 20 years, we're reminded that while progress has been made, the challenges of violence, fragility, and violent conflict persist. Remember, peace doesn't just happen, we have to build it. Thanks again for joining, and we'll see you next time.